As I was preparing this message on Thursday, uh, the astronomy community was on pins and needles in anticipation of yesterday's launch of the $10 billion Webb Space Telescope. How many of you were on pins and needles waiting for this launch? Nobody? How many of you even knew it was happening? All right, good. Yeah, it sort of began to emerge even more in the news of late, right? Uh, They launched it on Christmas Day. Yeah, you heard that right if you weren't aware. After many years of delays and bad weather earlier in the week, they decided to just do it on Christmas. I thought it was a little bit ironic. So far, the beginning of its month-long journey has been a success. I think at around three yesterday, they went through one little transition with the boosters and adjustments and all of that. And actually, I started to kind of nerd out on it a little bit this week, and that's okay. Astronomy is cool. That's your thing. Um, So orbiting one million miles from Earth on the opposite side of the sun, the telescope, which is an infrared upgrade to the Hubble telescope, it can see through the dust of space. And according to NASA administrator Bill Nelson, it's now going to take us back to the very beginnings of the universe. It can supposedly detect light from cosmic events and objects that were born over 13.5 billion years ago and have been traveling through the void of space, presumably uninterrupted. Now, they say we may find out more about the Big Bang, the theory of cosmic origins that scientists have updated um, to more of a long process of expansion than a sudden event. Not as big, not as bang, right? Some say it should be called the everywhere stretch theory instead of the Big Bang. And I suppose updating the language would be really helpful and would amount to saying that they were wrong. But they haven't officially done so, go figure. So it's the everywhere stretch. The theory, according to NASA's latest explanation that I found on NASA's website, if you're wondering, it assumes that at some point somewhere, hot, tiny particles mixed with light and energy, they expanded, cooled down, and they grouped together. They formed atoms and then expanded to become stars and galaxies. And the first stars created bigger atoms, more groups of atoms, and then more stars. And at the same time, galaxies were crashing together and grouping together amid this expansion. Then new stars were being born. Some were dying. And then asteroids and comets and planets and black holes formed along the way. This is the idea of the Big Bang, or now the everywhere stretch. And then presumably, among the more than 4,000 planets that we've discovered, just one happened to emerge with water covering 71% of its surface, creating impossibly perfect conditions for life of all kinds, including the genius humans who invested 40 million hours inventing and building a space telescope powered by rockets that can fly 1.5 million miles from Earth. Also, we can discover how it all happened, how it all began, maybe. This strictly materialist story of origins, it obviously begs a question, I think. If the universe is an expanding process and everything came from those hot, tiny particles mixed with light and energy, where did the particles and the light and the energy come from? It remains in mystery and probably always will. I think you can safely say that materialists, strict materialists, believe in the miraculous virgin birth of the cosmos. The miracle of how. Christians also believe in the miracle of how. Our how is who, really. But we also believe in the miracle of why. 
We believe in purpose. This why includes the virgin birth of Christ, the one from whom, John tells us, and for whom and by whom the whole cosmos exists. For all of human history, we've been staring at the stars in wonder. I still stare at them in wonder. You probably do too. In the second century, Ptolemy made some important and some lasting observations about the solar system. And of course, you had Copernicus and Galileo and Kepler. They advanced astronomy well beyond the basics in in a period of about two centuries, or three centuries, the 15th through the 17th centuries. But they would never have assumed an accident, a purely material and scientific expansion that precludes and obscures God, reducing life to a strange and happy accident instead of a gift. In fact, they assumed the opposite. Johannes Kepler said it was only reasonable to do so. The best astronomers can still make that argument. Whatever scientific howls they discover, this only enhances and, and, and only needs to enhance the wonder as to the why, the artistry of a creator designing a hospitable and meaningful world giving every particle and every process its purpose, giving light and life to the objects of his love. Ludwig Wittgenstein, who was one of the, probably the greatest philosopher of the 20th century, he was also an atheist, he actually surrendered this thought. He said, the solution to the riddle of life in space and time lies outside space and time. Amen. He didn't mean the same thing that we do, he wasn't surrendering to the idea of a God, but his brain started to hurt trying to think about how to resolve this mystery. To a degree, it's as simple as this, friends. We believe that which God miraculously created, he loves, he sustains, he destines. He even loves it enough to inhabit and to experience all the good and all the bad of existence, from poverty and tragedy to friendship and celebration, from the warmth of an open hand to the cold inhumanity of a fist. He knows it. Hunger, shame, ridicule, sore feet, sore teeth, betrayal, loneliness, injustice, and the nagging pain of watching those you love reject the truth because the alternative is more convenient or more respectable. But in the incarnation of the Son of God, we believe that the story of why, of purpose, of meaning, of love, came to its climax when this seemingly obscure miracle was performed among an obscure people in a very obscure place and time. This tiny Nazarene became the hope of humanity. The mind of God became a human voice with feet to carry the message, flesh to live it out fully for the sake of others. Against all odds, this message still shines in the darkness. And guess what? Here you are, and the darkness has not overcome it. The Apostle John, in the prologue to his gospel, which we heard today, he spells it out. The true light of the cosmos, as tangible as flesh and blood, has traveled farther than what vague infrared detection in space can decipher and what scientists can interpret, as cool as that is. The how and the why unite in the living word, the logos, which I like to describe as the aha of all that lies beneath our questions and our concerns and within our hope and within our wonder. God has spoken. 
Though a Jew, John, our gospeler today, he's going beyond the Jewish worldview and the, the Jewish vernacular to expand his reader's understanding of the Messiah. He's expanding the scope of God's interest as far as they were concerned. He's stretching the reach of God's love to the cosmic level. To do so, he takes on these broader, uh, at least one broader philosophical category of his age to loop in virtually everyone into Christ and his story. So you have in the first verse of chapter 1, where he leaves nothing to guess, really. In the Greco-Roman world, the logos, which we translate and capitalize as word, was a broad idea shrouded in mystery. To many, the logos was the transcendent truth upon which the universe is grounded, mostly unknowable. It is God's speak, if only we could hear it. John says, Jesus is born into the world as this ancient mystery revealed. He is God speaking. For Jewish believers, the Logos is akin to the sacred Mimrah in the Hebrew, the holy utterance of Yahweh, the Lord God, the one who dwells in inapproachable light and whose name was not to be spoken. This God appeared to Moses in the flaming light of a burning bush, calling him back to Egypt to be the deliverer of his people. And Moses, understandably, he responds to the call saying, well, who am I supposed to say has sent me? And the reply was, I am that I am. In John's gospel, eight chapters after our reading today, Jesus declares before Abraham was, I am. John restates this point when he bookends the prologue here in verse 18, saying this, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is what the Logos is and does. He makes God the unknowable and the unapproachable known because he is the God who approaches in the flesh. John also says the word was not new or created or separate from God. He says three things. The word was in the beginning, the word was with God, and the word was God. He puts a finer point on it, saying the word was God. Together, the with and the was, they convey this divine, eternal fellowship that we know as the God who is three in one. Mysterious, but fundamental. It's not just spatial existence where he is up there with God in some sense, but relational unity. He with and was, that's indivisible, distinct, but unified, ever-living, ever-giving, connected in a way we cannot only fathom because he has told us it is so. Verse 3 reinforces here in, the, in our reading today, reinforces but also restates what we actually know from the first chapter of Genesis. Everything that exists is the handiwork of God. And this pre-existent word, the mind of God communicating human life and all that sustains it, this is how it has come to be. The word, the logos, God has uttered, He has spoken, and is everywhere stretching the infinite universe, but also the intimate place for His people. In verse 4, John reminds us that by the word, the mind of God imparts a unique light to humanity. He's not simply talking about what has happened in the incarnation, but he's talking about what has always been happening from God himself and from creation. 
that this unique light of, to humanity, that of self-awareness and the bil- ability to see and to discern through the darkness of ignorance and unknowing. Life that is light, zoe, imparted uniquely to those created to bear God's image and likeness. When God breathed life out and into men and women, it was the Logos who filled our lungs. Not only our lungs, but our minds, our understanding, our awareness, all our senses in service to our connection to the divine. The very impulse that turns our eyes to the light of the stars in wonder and says, how and why? It's what turns our eyes in that way and not just us to our next meal like everything else. This word is who the prophet John the Baptist would say is he who comes after me but who ranks before me. Because he was before me. John uniquely gets him. He gets his pre-existent divinity. And so John wants the in utero baby who leapt in his mother's womb in the presence of the in utero Christ now leaps into prophetic action, proclaiming him as Christ with both confidence and deference. Confidence, but deference. Verse 9 is an important pivot point from what the prologue has already made clear. The true light which gives light to everyone was now coming into the world. The Apostle John is saying that the nature of understanding, that the light that is already the spark of humanity and which turns our eyes toward the heavens is now taking on eyes himself, coming into the world so that we can lay eyes on him. He's up the ante. He's gone further. In other words, a deeper, fuller expression of what God wants us to see and wants us to hear and to know is breaking into human history, undeniably coming down to meet our gaze in person. But will we see him? Will we accept him? Well, that was dicey at first, wasn't it? And John takes this up there in verses 10 and 11. The word wasn't recognized. Was not understood? Was it known? Was it accepted because he didn't fit the preconceptions even of those awaiting him. So they dismissed him outright. He didn't fit in the box because he couldn't fit in the box. They didn't believe until some did. And that's John's next point in verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What we're meant to hear John saying right here is that God is taking the initiative again. Creating the world and the human family again. It's a new beginning. It's a new birth for each of us and all of us in Jesus who himself was born into the history we know. Divine initiative is how it happens. Not bloodline. Not moral excellence. Not human knowledge and achievement. Divine initiative becomes the new origin story of life. Why? Because it's always been the origin story of life. Divine self-giving, divine action, the utterance of God. New life comes to us because of His origin, because of His excellence, because of His knowledge and His achievement, walking among us, suffering what we suffer, facing the death we all face. And in doing so, he stripped injustice and suffering and death of the power to ultimately deface and to ultimately unmake that which was created to be the greatest glory and affection of God. What is that? Look around. It's you. 
And it's me. So new life comes by meeting his gaze in faith. Accepting the mysterious fact of the incarnation as the ultimate expression of God giving himself to us. God with us. Verse 16, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, John says. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Along and along, throughout the darkness of human history, light has been coming. But when the fullness of time had come, Paul told the Galatians, and in our reading today, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Paul says the law was a guardian. It was a stopgap. Temporary. But through it, the light of God's desires for humanity shone, guiding us in ways that preserve, ways that protect, always anchored in a promise of more and a promise of better. Helpful and even beautiful in its ability to locate the grain of the universe for us. Because guess what? We struggle with that. It's capable of keeping our rebellion at bay when we don't even realize we're living in it. It's able to beat back the darkness in us and around us. But the law couldn't give new life, and it was never intended to. This is John's point. This is Paul's point. In the fullness of time, God himself was coming in the flesh to fulfill the law for us and end its tenure as our guardian and only light. And then he's inviting us in no uncertain terms to simply and humbly accept that he has come and he's done this for us. To believe and to keep believing. To look at the light and to keep looking at the light with his help and with the help of this new family that we have whom he's adopted, gathered, children of God, reborn of God, the God who comes full of grace and truth, the God who comes with something to say, something to which we must listen. And the truth is a tricky thing for us, if we're honest. We all have a way of working backward to the truth from ourselves, backward to reality from where we are presently. We work back from how we think and feel in the present, unaware of or undeterred by the gaps in our thinking, the dark corners of our understanding. It's just how we do things. We all imagine ourselves throwing our own light into life, making our own life by our own light. We don't even have to try to do that, do we? And that's part of actually what it means to have once been enlightened in the image and likeness of God. To know that we know and that we can know. But here's the sticky part. Our own self-emanating light, the light that comes from us, the, the beacon of even our best intentions, it often flickers and it fails before it even reaches the end of our hands, before our intentions even become actions, the place where we actually must attempt to live by it honestly and consistently, and we fail. And the real question is this, what is God's farsighted response to our nearsighted pride and error? Our determination to look into the origins of the cosmos to see everything, anything but Him. How does He respond? Does He give up on us? No, John says grace upon grace, if we receive it. Grace and truth. He has something to say to us if we will be open to both 
and honest with ourselves. He gives and He is the gift. If we will look and if we will keep looking to the light that is broken through, listening to the Logos who has made God known, the love that came from eternity, beyond even the birth of the cosmos, to be born for us. I want to leave you with a short parable of the incarnation. And it marries to some extent Isaiah 62 and John 1 and and so much of what it means that Christ has come. It's one of my favorite parables of the incarnation. It's told in a book called Mortal Lessons, which is a memoir of a surgeon named Richard Seltzer. Here's what he writes. He says, I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, clownish. The tiny twig of her facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, has been severed. This surgeon followed with religious fervor the curve of her mouth. I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. Who are they, I ask myself, he and this wry mouth that I have made, who gaze at and touch each other so generously, even greedily? The young woman speaks, will my mouth always be like this? Yes, I say it will. The nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. And all of a sudden, I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with God. Unmindful of me, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth. And I am so close, I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate hers. To show her that the kiss still works. The kiss still works, friends. The Creator still sees and loves what and who he has made. Jesus, in the clarity of his own pure light, he still sees his bride. He has come and he's still coming for us. He loved and he still loves a disfigured humanity so much that he gave himself to us in the very shape in which we find ourselves. Amongst the societies we make and unmake, he twisted his own lips into the form of humanity and made his dwelling among us. Amid unnecessary but inevitable poverty, among corrupt power and the severed nerves of conscience, despite the disfiguring cancer of sin and all we lose sight of in the darkness. John says this later in one of his letters. He says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the offering for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. The Word became flesh, grace upon grace upon grace. Grace stretching and stretching everywhere, still shaping the story, still shaping the universe. This love, this grace, if we will receive it, it becomes actually the love and the grace we are reborn to give, John is saying, everywhere stretching out through us. 
through the light of our love in the darkness of our own time and our own space, as we too twist our lips to be the body of Christ, to make him known, and to see how and why it all began. Do you believe it? Father, help us to believe it. Let new light break into our hearts and minds and let the word become flesh again for us and in us and through us. We want the world you want and that you've made and that you're redeeming. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.